0: Hello, and
1: welcome to the Recovery Ramble edition of the Milestone Pursuit Podcast. This is the sixth one of these that we've done where I run along, and I'm Steve. I run along and chat about a specific issue that I've been thinking about. And today's one, it builds a little bit on the the fourth edition of the Recovery Ramble, which was about imposter syndrome. And... Moves into the territory inspired by The Social Dilemma, that sort of documentary on Netflix about social media, It's inspired by that and it will talk a lot about social media, the trouble with it, the impact it has and of course some things that we can do. So I've been thinking about this one for a while. No great surprise to many of you I'm sure, so today we're going to run along through Epping Forest at a really easy pace, keeping it really chilled and talk about a little bit about social media, it should be fun, let's see. So, as we get into it, I suppose it's worth saying that social media has always fascinated me, ever since the very beginning. And for me, you know, the beginning of Facebook really, when you had MySpace and Friends Reunited and all that sort of stuff, but Facebook was where it really kicked off, wasn't it? 2004? I reckon I joined in, I don't know, 2006, seven, something like that, and what was, was fascinating at the very outset it was the mundanity of Facebook, and it's just people pe- posting pictures of their dinner. Oh look, I'm having lasagna today, or weather reports. Oh, it's raining. Still goes on today, that, both those things, really. But particularly weather reports, whenever there's a bit of snow. it's always snowing. All right, okay, thanks. Um, always makes me chuckle. And I can remember myself playing into that. This, uh, Facebook started desktop only before smartphones were around. And uh, there's a period when you could text a short number to update your update your status on the go. That was exciting. I remember telling people I was on the bus. Whoa. That was fun. Anyway. That was two thousand and four, but a bit mundane. A bit of fun. Nothing too dramatic. Sorry, more two thousand and seven let's say. And which was also the time that Twitter started. And I think I joined that one pretty early. And that was really exciting because that was about microblogging. It was about 140 characters describing what you were doing, what you were up to, what you were thinking. It's gonna change the world. I remember a presentation about Twitter really in its early days of how it was gonna rapidly increase the spread of information that was relevant geographically, or location-based. Really exciting. And so it was. And then of course we've got Instagram, and now we've got TikTok, Snapchat, blah, blah, blah. All slightly different, all slightly the same. And of course we've got generations of people who've grown up knowing nothing else but social media. So given that I've always found it interesting, I've always found people's behavior on it interesting, including my own. And by the way, all the way through this, there's no judgment applied to any individual because many of the things that are problematic are things that I do myself and I'm well aware of that. So I'm not attacking this from a highest, more mighty perspective. It's just a thoughtful one. So with that interest in mind, I was quite excited to watch The Social Dilemma. Thought that might be quite interesting. And also I've got a background in, in media and advertising, so I've got experience of working with Facebook through an ad sales perspective. Nothing unique about that, but it does alter the perspective a little. So yeah, watching The Social Dilemma, the Netflix sort of documentary, morning that they attempt to dramatise a little bit in sections. So if you haven't seen it, it's on Netflix, your algorithm will probably find it for you now. But it's deliberately set up to be, or to expose some of the practices that we sometimes hear about, and we'll come on to those in a minute. But it's also deliberately designed to terrify us because that creates good telly. And it makes it really watchable as a result. And it's clever in that context, or clever in that sense but it hooks you in. And what it does, the whole thing, about 90 minutes of it, it basically tells you a number of things about the practice that all of the big tech companies, the US tech companies operate and how they use us and our data. And it positions it as some grand plan to control the world, which it might be, who knows? tell, I guess. But it does a number of things, so it just talks through how the social networks manipulate us as users, how it encourages addiction, encourages us to keep coming back over and over, spending loads of time inside the network, inside the app. It talks about how they steal our data, the data that is our user preferences, our user behavior, things we look at, things we search for, both on and off the Facebook page or the social network page, not specific to Facebook. A lot of this is with Facebook in mind though. referencing Facebook a lot doesn't mean it's all about Facebook but a lot of it is so stealing that data to target you with messages from advertisers I do that myself use Facebook as an advertising platform use it for the podcast and in theory the targeting is good you can narrow it down quite finely based on preferences, interests, all that kind of stuff. But one of the arguments that's presented is that today also use that data morning morning. to serve you agendas, serve you things that either reinforce what you may already be thinking at the extreme end or trying to change your your paradigm on certain big issues, and we can all think of those big issues, from Brexit to, that's right, racism, to, sorry that wasn't directed at you, (laughs) to racism, to feminism, white supremacy, whatever it might be. So goes the targeting, or so the argument goes, the targeting goes beyond advertising, which can feel intrusive at times into the way that we think. And goes as far as influencing elections. 2016 US presidential election, Maybe even Brexit, who knows? So there's a lot going on underneath the hood. It's an undulating section in the forest now, so it's going to slow the pace right down. So there's some truth to all of that. I'm sure. I'm sure there's some truth in there. I'm equally sure that there's more nuance than that. And at its core, Facebook was designed to connect people and I think it still just about does that to an extent but it has definitely become an ad platform and perhaps the world's biggest ad platform and that brings with it power Facebook and Google alone represent about 20% of the total advertising spend across the world. It's about, between the two of them, somewhere between 120 and 140 billion dollars. That's what we spend on advertising on Facebook and Google. Facebook's about half that, I think. Hard to know. People like to make up numbers. But it's huge. And I can remember in my days in advertising sitting through meetings with Facebook and they were laying out their grand vision. This is probably early 2010s, something like that. And they were talking then about, well, I remember specifically one person asking what they thought was a really cute question. And that was something like this. It went something like, when is Facebook to, this is an advertising agency person, to a Facebook exec? A senior Facebook exec? Something like, when is Facebook going to realise that it's more than just an ad platform? It's more than that. It's about connecting people to brands and allowing users to discover new brands, new ways, new thinking, new new stuff, new content. And the response was brilliant. The response was something like, when's the advertising industry going to realise we're building the world's biggest and most effective Advertising platform where you can target people all across the world at the touch of a button, with a specific focus on specific groups of people. Very directed messages leading to immediate action. You're like, ooh, okay, that's pretty clear. You can see where you th- where you think the world is going. And so it's proved. And with that comes a lot of power. All those users. It's amazing really. But anyway, so there's some truth to all of those things about the use of power the power over our data potentially the power over us the seeding of messages the influence of the networks and their algorithms but Facebook refutes it, obviously and I'll post this link in the episode notes, they wrote a two or three page document to challenge a lot of the things that were written. Sorry, to challenge a lot of the things that were broadcast. And it's worth just thinking those through and talking about them a little. And some of them they argue convincingly, some of them a little bit less so. So on addiction and the need to keep people in the the network and to get people coming back time and time again, clearly they claim otherwise that they're not trying to create addiction, they're just trying to create something that's useful and interesting to people. And they talk about how they have employed people, to build mental health products to build things that are dealing with loneliness to try and help people. So they claim that they're they're acting in the interests of everyone's mental health. The second thing they say, morning, is that there's a sense that the product is the people and the data that sits on those people. But they refute that by claiming that individuals are not the product because none of the data that is used is personally identifiable. Which can't possibly be true. You have to have a real name to be on Facebook. But what might be true is that they don't use that. And it's in US and EU law that data, digital data should not be identifiable down to an individual. So that helps them claim that you individually are not being sold, it's just people like you groups of people like you that are. They talk about the algorithm and they refute the idea that the algorithm is controlling and gives you what you what they want you to see. And their counter argument is the algorithm is there to feed you what you want to see, make it interesting and relevant. They talk about data again. And they talk about the fact they self-regulate and how they collect and use and sell on the data. And how they're open to working with regulatory bodies to produce industry-wide regulation. It's getting a bit flaky in there, I think. How proactive are they really being about that? And then they talk about polarisation which we see a lot of. So this is the idea that they feed extreme opinions at both ends of spectrums, no matter what the subject, because it creates hooks and keeps people coming back, whether to argue against an extreme opinion or to defend one. And this, they just flatly deny that they do that deliberately. They talk about users. And then they talk about the US election of 2016 and they admit to have making, having made some mistakes, I guess, in what they allow people to do with their data. And they talk about how they've improved things and that the documentary doesn't reflect that. And they talk about misinformation, so this idea of fake news. What they're doing to combat the publication of fake news through their through their site. And they talk about that there's no mention in the documentary of 70 fact-check experts that they employ globally, Seven zero for an organisation that is making 70 billion US dollars a year in revenue. Hmm, 70 people, doesn't sound like a lot to me. So of course what you've got now is a binary issue. You've got the documentary taking a position that social networks, social media is bad, is evil, is harming us in ways we can't even comprehend, scaring us about that. And then on the other hand, you've got the social media companies going, that's all right, nothing to see here. We're doing this and we're doing that. and Everything's great. And so we lose that nuance in the middle of, yeah, you know what, that's right, you know. We do need more regulation. or we do need to be more in control of our data. We do need more fact check experts. And binary issues are what the whole thing feeds off. And now I'm drawn at this point to the great Shawn Mendes, the Canadian singer not my generation of course but I listen to him all the time because my boys are massively into Capital Radio for some reason which play the same songs over and over and over. Sorry Sorry anybody who might be listening who works for Global but I must have heard the Shawn Mendes song I Wonder 50 times in the last few weeks. Maybe more, who knows. But in it, he says, I wonder, wouldn't it be nice to live inside a world that isn't black or white, or black and white? i sure Mendez gets it. He's 22. And that's part of the problem with the way that we express ourselves in social media is that, often, things are expressed in a really binary way. I'm right, you're wrong. Morning. Let's keep arguing until one of us breaks down. Doesn't admit defeat or move to the other. just has a breakdown. And that's not to say there isn't a role for extreme opinions in the world. Because there is, because extreme opinions move things forward, they move debates forward, they make us understand other perspectives better. It's the fixation on the extreme ends and the lack of movement that causes the problem. And I've said this before, but if in a world where something's so entrenched as gender is non-binary, how can anything else be binary? It can't be, can it? If gender can be so nuanced that people fluidly move from one to another as and when they see fit. And most of us accept that as being a choice that people make or a way that they feel. and it's okay and acceptable. How can it be acceptable to be so binary about other matters? But anyway, I'm going to move on because that isn't actually the main issue that I was going to tackle today. But before I do tackle the main issue, it's worth thinking about some of the good things that come out of social media because it's all presented negatively. Let's look at the good things. And I always think it's good to focus on just one, maybe two, when you're talking about this sort of stuff. Because it weakens it if you talk about loads of long lists. But it's about the connection of people. It's good that we can connect with people all over the world people we either know, don't know, want to know and it's good that information spreads so quickly. There are obviously instances where it's not but generally we can find out what's going on pretty quickly. And that connection to people idea is really interesting because obviously where we're going to go with this is that social media is not great at times for people's mental health. But there was a time when being alone wasn't great for mental health either. And I can, when I went to university in 1991, through the internet, same time as the internet, but obviously it wasn't mainstream. And I was terribly homesick for the first term, quite a lot of the first year. And I could really have done with a way of connecting with my old school friends. It might not have helped me in the long run, but at the time, That would have been enormously valuable to me. So instead of that, my friends, I had to watch neighbors to connect to people, aside from obviously the new people I was meeting. But that was hard, and I reckon it would have been a lot easier if social media was there to facilitate. Or perhaps it would have been just as hard, but in different ways, who knows. And then this brings me all the way back to a conversation I had with a friend of mine a long time ago now. A dinner party type conversation. Where, so I think it was before we had children, they were saying stuff like, well, I really feel for our children, they're growing up, and maybe we did have children. I forget now anyway it's not important our children are growing up in the worst possible age I can really feel for them it's going to be really tough for them to navigate this social media world and I was like hmm okay But the worst possible age was the thing that I latched onto I'm not sure I, I can believe that I agree with that simply because the generation before us, before mine my parents were born in and around the war were children through rationing they were children through a genuine threat of a nuclear war through the cold war and you're telling me that children being able to handle Facebook is as potentially dangerous and harming as that mm. ok but here we go, is the nuance the nuance is, all things are relative we don't have to suffer rationing anymore, there is no cold war there is no significant nuclear threat but there is a threat to our mental health that is at times propagated by social media but the main issue I have with all of that and with the documentary and Facebook's response and everything that's said about the evils of social media and how it works is that it all assumes that the user that me and you you're all An unwitting agent in what's going on. But you're not. You're complicit. We are complicit. Social media propagates, but we are narcissistic. We are self loathing. We're attention seeking. We're insecure. There's so much that we bring to social media that exaggerates its impact on us. But it comes down to the way that we act and what we do. And the networks can't be blamed for that. We can argue that they need to help. can't be blamed and again I'm not suggesting that I'm above any of this we all do it we all post stuff as we intend to be represented rather than a reality So, the big question is what do we do, if it's partly us or mostly us, what do we do about it? Well, there's two areas that we're going to talk about. The first is some short-term fixes, things that can get you through it from one week to another. The second is the long-term fixes. talked about short-term versus long-term in episode number five of the recovery ramble. Play to that. Short-term fixes versus long-term structures. So there's a whole bunch of things you can do in the short-term that many people do. I do a number of these myself. These are the types of things you read on a how to deal with social media blog. And here they go. So detox. I do this once a year. Switch the phone off for a week. Sometimes ten days, sometimes two days. And it's amazing for creating a short-term behaviour change. It's amazing for dialing into the world you're living in and realising there's more to the world around you than you see through your phone really therapeutic highly recommend doing that then there is kind of associated to that to be clear on when and where you're going to use it put boundaries up Places in your house where you are and where you're not. Going to look at your phone. Boundaries about when you're out with other people. All that stuff. Be clear. So then we're into be careful about what you say. Be careful who and what you retweet and comment upon pause for breath before you get sucked in. That's number two on my list. Number three, interact with people. Interact with people. People you know. People who have a name. In particular, avoid trying and avoid people who carry some kind of amusing moniker. be real in your use online. Don't respond, number four, don't respond to provocative comments or comparison culture. So dangerous getting ourselves hooked into this world where we're looking at what other people are doing, feeling envy or thinking somehow they're better than us. Just don't engage. Sometimes easy easier said than done, obviously. Be kind. I think the running community on Twitter is amazing. There's quite a lot of nonsense talked about what you should do with your running and specific things applied as a, or assumed to be generalisms. I had this, so this must be what you have too, that type of stuff. But there's also loads of good. There's loads of encouragement and kindness and I've seen loads of it this year where people say I'm struggling today don't feel great and there's plenty of people around to support them so be kind and then prune do some pruning cut out the people who aren't kind cut out the out the people whose voices you don't want to hear, who make you feel bad. But as you do that, realise that you're cutting yourself off from alternative perspectives. And I'll come back to that. Thank you. And then there's real life. Live in the real world. Get out there. I'm as introverted as the next person but Even I acknowledge how important it is to connect with people And actually get out and See some people For real, look them in the eyes And then the final thing, I can't remember what the number is now Lost count is to realise that lots of people are using it in a polarising way to create noise around themselves. And a couple of really good examples of that are Donald Trump, who says things deliberately provocatively, to engage with his user fan base and to alienate the others and wind them up. Another example is Piers Morgan. A prolific tweeter. Everything is couched in hyperbole. Everything's either the best ever, the worst ever. Amazing or terrible and he does that consciously to draw attention draw attention to what he's saying and to draw attention to the thing he's talking about and loads of people do it and it's really common practice now for people to say right for me to have a voice online which builds my personal profile maybe my personal brand Maybe my business, I need to be extreme. So I think it's really important we realise that when we're reading extreme messages. And remember that if we were to discuss it in person with them, which we don't, but if we were, there would be a nuanced conversation to be had. And so while I say prune and cut yourself off from the people who are annoying you, be sure to keep some alternative perspectives in your life because that's how we learn and develop and move forward. You don't have to agree with everything. You don't have to agree with everything I'm saying, but it's important to see some alternatives Subject for another day. But if nobody argued that a wheel might be a better way of moving things on a moving things around, whenever the wheel was invented, then well, it would never have been invented. It takes alternative thinking to come up with new ideas. So there's a load of stuff that I think paper over the cracks, really. They'll help you deal with it, they'll help you get through it. But they're short-term fixes. They're not talking about the long-term problem. And the long-term problem that we're really trying to fix is around self-worth. Because that's where the problems with people's mental health come through social media is when they think They're not as worthy as other people, as presented by social media. This is where we get into comparison culture, where we get into teenagers, really focused on looks. All those horrible things, some of those things you see. And where we get into things like self-harm Anxiety, all of those things. And it all comes back down to, for me, at least you may not agree, but it comes down to self worth. And it's applicable in lots of contexts, not just in social media. And the thing with self worth. Leads pretty quickly to the idea of shame, which I've spoken about before in the imposter syndrome episode. And imposter syndrome is often what we feel in social media. Imposter syndrome, remember, is the idea that we're not worth our place in the arena that we've chosen, that there are other people are better, more qualified, more expert, more engaging, prettier, fitter, whatever it might be, as presented by social media. And it exists despite what you know about yourself, despite what you may have achieved. The idea that other people are better still exists. And more importantly, the way you feel about that still exists. And that, imposter syndrome, is linked to two things. We've talked about one already, shame is one. The other side of that is perfectionism and this idea that we set ourselves impossible standards. And again, that's facilitated by social media, so the way that people look, the pictures that they post, the things that they say, they help us set ourselves impossible standards, which is not healthy. And then, as I say, shame is the other side of that coin, and shame is this idea, this sense that we're flawed, that we're not enough. Although that we're not good enough. We're not fast enough. We're not fit enough. We're not pretty enough. We don't wear nice enough clothes. We're not clever enough. We're not enough. And we feel shame. And that shame represents itself in three ways. We fight. We take flight. Or we people please. And we all do all of these. So we either argue incessantly about our perspective because we don't feel good enough and we're trying to make it clear that we, we do know we do know what we're talking about. We run away. We react to bad comments, to argument, to shame by leaving the arena often in a half sometimes without telling people. And it's because of the way that we feel about ourselves. And then finally, with people please? If we make a mistake, we say something we shouldn't, perhaps we then over egg the reparation process online through social media by being nice to people or to being nice to other people. none of those things are particularly healthy. They are also short-term fixes to make yourself feel a little better. So what is the answer to all this? Well the answers lie in a very similar way to what we talked about with imposter syndrome. And none of it's easy. I'm not saying it's going to happen overnight just like you're not going to get fitter through your run training program overnight. None of it's easy, but it's incredibly valuable, I think. And there are three things. The first is to embrace human imperfection. It is to know and understand and own the fact that you are not perfect but nor is anybody else. And look beyond the presentation and Think think what about what's driving the way that person is presenting themselves. And you may not know, but imagine that it's not what is being presented and that person is not perfect. And that helps you to be compassionate understanding and empathetic both to them and to yourself the second is to engage in what I call critical awareness is to be really switched on to who you are spend some time being honest about who you are what you do what you're good at what you're not good at, what you like, what you don't like. Both your achievements and your shortcomings. Spend time thinking about them and own them. It's okay to be good at something. It's equally okay to be not very good at something else. So own it and own the fact There are people better than you. It's okay. But it takes thought. It takes you to engage in that process. Morning. And then the final thing you is to display authenticity and vulnerability. Once you've worked out who you are, once you've been really critical with yourself in a good and a negative way, then be yourself and be vulnerable when it's required. Be honest. My favourite sentences that display this begin with, "Sorry." or I don't know, or I'm not sure, bit of humility in the way that we present ourselves. Always suggests that you've got yourself intact, you know, you know yourself. So there we have it, we're nearing the end of this recovery ramble. We talked about social media, the binary nature of the debate between the social dilemma, Facebook's response, how binaryism pervades our society, how it's used, and how it can impact upon our mental health. But most importantly we talked about some short term fixes, but we talked about some long term game changers actually is probably the best way to describe it. Things we can do to avoid ourselves getting caught in a negative mental health space by the rabbit hole that can be social media and embrace what social media can provide which is connection and speed of information. And some of this stuff that's presented will be true both by Facebook, by the social dilemma, by me, and some of it won't be. but on the really edgy stuff around the use of data, let the lawmakers decide what the uh, the way it should be handled. And for those who know me, you'll know that controlling the controllables is something I passionately believe in. And the use of our data doesn't feel controllable to me. So I'd rather think about other things that are, which is how I deal with it. How I deal with being targeted, how I deal with the binary nature of the media And how I deal with my own mental health. Let's focus on that. Because it's all about us really and how we feel individually. Good. There we go. We are all done. Thanks for engaging with that if you enjoyed it. Please. Comment or subscribe. Subscriptions help me, so that'd be good. And I'm not I'm not naive enough to think I'm immune to all of these things. As I ask you to subscribe to my podcast. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thanks very much for joining me. I've enjoyed my run.
0: It's time to go. Get freshened up. Take care. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm.